Let me pray. Father, we thank you that uh, your word is wisdom. It is life to our very bones. And I, I thank you this morning as we're challenged by James to seek the wisdom from heaven and not the wisdom of the world. Father, I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, would you bring a, a conviction into our hearts this morning? Not a conviction of our sin, but a conviction of our righteousness, who you have actually called us to be in this world. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to be, to be his image bearers in this world, his ambassadors. And so we just pray this morning that your word would just come alive in our hearts. We don't want information this morning, we want transformation. Thank you, God. Yeah, amen. Amen. All right, so we're looking at the book of James, and uh, who's been reading James along with us over the, yeah, great few people. Encourage you, if you haven't started doing that, you can do that. It's a short book. Five chapters, real short. You can read all five chapters every week. Easy. Read the Sermon on the Mount alongside it, Matthew chapter 5 and chapter, uh, through to chapter 7, because James is reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount the whole way through, and uh, it's just a brilliant uh, little book. And so, so James, the, the book of James is pretty much like the Proverbs of the New Testament. So it's a wisdom book. It's, it's supposed to provide wisdom for us, the wisdom of heaven. Um, and, and the other thing that James is wanting to do here with his book is he's wanting to see believers become mature and, and wise. He's wanting us to grow up in the faith. And, and so he's also calling us not to just have a confession about Jesus, but also a conviction that lines up with our confession, that, that when we say we follow Jesus, who knows that, that, that faith is allegiance to Jesus and it looks like something. Faith looks like something. Um, so James is continually quoting and reflecting on the teachings of Jesus, and in particular the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we did a, a series on the Sermon on the Mount um, last year, I think it was, and, um, and if you remember when, when we did that series, uh, I talked about the fact that the Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus' kingdom manifesto. I imagine this, Jesus arrives and he has this uh, person who comes before him, John, who's saying, uh, prepare the way of the Lord. You know, there's a new king coming and his name is Jesus. And then Jesus, he gets up and he, and he, provide, he gives his teaching, his kingdom manifesto on what the ethics of the kingdom look like. Imagine it like Jesus is king and he's describing the politics of his kingdom. Right, these are his policies. This is how his subjects will live and act in the world. And so this is what the Sermon on the Mount is. Um, and so, the, so here's the point. If we have made Jesus king of our hearts, then the kingdom manifesto should be central to our lives. This is not just an add-on, like a nice little extra. It's not, not just an optional extra. Allegiance to Jesus as king requires us to live in obedience to his kingdom ethics. And, and so what can often happen is, is we might have actually uh, shortchanged the gospel, or we might have heard a message that has shortchanged the gospel. And, and if we've just uh, you know, been invited to reserve a place in heaven, you know, the, the gospel is about how do we get to heaven when we die. We've actually shortchanged the gospel because that is just a confession without a conviction. And, and actually, we miss out on the important aspect that discipleship is what it means to follow Jesus. And, and so if we are not interested in the ethics uh, of the kingdom, the, the Sermon on the Mount, if that is not central to our life as following Jesus, then potentially we aren't following Jesus. And that's the challenge that James is sort of laying down for us here. Um, Dietrich um, Bonhoeffer, he once wrote an incredible book called The Cost of Discipleship. 
And in his book, he says this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. So for Bonhoeffer, the, the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to participate in this death daily in order that true life might be found. Listen, that those that lose their life for his sake will find true life. This is what Jesus said. And, but the, and the rest who choose not to do that, the rest will spend their lives trying to find life in the sinking sand of achievement, success, comparison, position, and many other dehumanizing behaviors. And forever wondering why it does not satisfy the thirst of a dry and weary soul. See, Bonhoeffer also went on to describe the paradox of faith, which is this, that he says that the one who believes obeys. So the one who believes obeys, and the one who does not obey cannot believe. That is the paradox of faith. See, we need a confession that aligns with our, a conviction that aligns with our confession. Um, when, when we think about the ethics of, of, of the kingdom and the fact that Jesus said that, that we are to pray that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, uh, um, this should be what we live, this is, should be what we are passionate about as followers of Jesus, that, that the culture and life of heaven would come into the earth through us. I, I used to be an electrician and... Um, there's something that happens with electricity. Who, who knows that if you touch the red wire, it hurts? Yeah? Pretty basic. Uh, uh, did you know that you could touch the red wire and it not hurt? See, see electricity is always looking for earth. It's always looking for earth. If you've seen um, uh, an electrical storm, uh, th- th- what, what lightning is doing is trying to find earth. It's finding, trying to find the shortest path to earth. And that's why we'll, we'll, we'll hit a lightning rod that is connected to the earth. It will take that path before any other path. Electricity is always looking for the shortest path to earth. Right? And, and as believers, as followers of Jesus, who, know, who knows that we could be connected to the power source, but unless you are connected to the earth, power will not flow through you. So the, the, the kingdom of heaven, if we are not connected to the earth, we are not connected to the people that God is wanting to try and reach, power will not flow through us. It needs a connection from heaven to earth. Guess who is the connection between heaven and earth? You. You. <laughs> Jesus is in you. You are the connection between heaven and earth. Do you know that the temple in the, in the Old Testament is literally is designed and shaped to look like the Garden of Eden? The Garden of Eden is where heaven met earth, and they created the temple to describe this is the place where heaven meets earth. In fact, they even called it that. They called the temple heaven and earth. And what are we now? The temples of the Holy Spirit. Come on, we are where heaven is supposed to meet earth. But my friends, I want to encourage you, if we are not connected to the Word of God and then connected to the people of God, the people that God is wanting to try and reach, Actually, this is all in vain. This is not just about getting to heaven when we die, my friends. This is about heaven getting into us and connecting with the earth and connecting with those around us that need to hear the good news. This is the gospel. And James is trying to encourage us with this. You know, he said, come on, you can't just hear the word and not do it. That's not following Jesus. 
So the goal of, 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 of James is that, that we would have wisdom and maturity, that we, the people of God, would live wisely and mature lives that reflect the ethics and politics of Jesus, our King. And, and it's the same as Paul. If you look at the writings of Paul, all the letters to the church, he's constantly encouraging the church to grow in maturity, to grow in unity, to grow in love. And... Uh, in, in, uh, uh, Colossians, it says, I don't know what chapter, I think it's chapter one. He says, he, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. But here's the unfortunate thing. People have done a lot of study around Christian maturity and Christian faith, and they, they say that around 85% of believers never really mature in the faith. They also say that around 85% of people are not self-aware. At least, there's a pretty good link there, I think. Now, when I hear that, that makes me sad, it makes me frustrated, but it makes me energized. Well, this is why I. This is what I live for. You know what I mean? Like to share this gospel that we could we could present ourselves fully mature before Christ. Anyone else want that? All right, you just signed up for a tough deal. The death of yourself. Ah, <laughs> you all know. Right, so why do, why do a lot of believers fail to mature? Because maturity will cost you. And unfortunately, most are not willing to pay the Christ. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? No one goes to build a tower without first counting the cost. He's saying, if you want to follow me, you must first count the cost. This is the free gift that will cost you everything. Come on, the, the grace is free, yeah? Maturity is costly. Maturity is costly. Come on, why? Because we have to be willing to pay the price. It'll cost you your pride, your time, your safety, your comfort. It will cost you your success and your gifts and all the things that we thought were protecting us and making us safe. Jesus wants it all. Why? Because they are all counterfeits of the real thing. And he wants us to have the real thing. But we have to be willing to give up the counterfeits. The things that we thought were protecting us, but were actually enslaving us. That's it. So to be mature is actually quite basic. It's, it's Jesus. No more, no less. It's just Jesus. And, and, and we've got to come before him and say anything that is not him is me and whatever is me is not reflecting him. And if I'm not reflecting him, then I am not being who I was called to be. Because I was called to be an image bearer, a walking, talking representation of my Father in heaven. And anything that is not him is me, and anything that's me is not reflecting him. Come on, this is the call to discipleship, to give up our own lives, to truly find real life. We haven't even started on James yet. That's all right. I, I just want to give you a quick thought on emotional health. Uh, emotionally healthy spirituality. If we've got a slide, we could chuck up there and then we'll, we'll jump into the passage. Um, 
All right, so um, 10 symptoms of emotionally unhealthy spirituality. I think this is really helpful for us to identify um, because often when we are living in this sort of mindset and understanding, we're actually, um, we're actually not aware that we are. This is the reality of it. And sometimes we actually need someone to point the stuff out for us. So, so the first symptom of um, um, uh, emotionally unhealthy spirituality is using God to run from God. Yeah, so we fill our lives with Christian activities to avoid difficult issues. We use God to run away from God. Um, number two, ignoring the emotions of anger, sadness, and fear. We, we push them away, and we almost feel guilty about them because we think that God doesn't like them. Actually, God wants us to bring them to Him, but, but often we can ignore those emotions. We can, um, we can say our feelings don't really matter and, and that these things are irrelevant. Actually, they're important. We need to bring them to God. Number three, dying to the wrong things, all right? Sometimes we deny the healthy God-given desires like joy and friendship and laughter, but at the same time, we struggle to die to destructive things like defensiveness and a lack of vulnerability and, and judging others, judgmentalism. Number four, denying the past impact on the present. We can live in denial that, that our childhood are affecting the way we live, think, and act. Number five, dividing life into secular and sacred components. We have our God time on Sunday, and then the rest of the week is our own. Um, we can get into this mindset of doing for God instead of being with God. Number seven, spiritualizing away conflict. Oh, I hear this all the time. We over-spiritualize stuff. Oh, I'm just in a new season. You know, or, you know all those sorts of things where we, where we over-spiritualize stuff so we can avoid the pain of relational conflict or avoid the pain of actually facing some of our stuff and we over-spiritualize it. We'll talk about that in a bit. Covering over brokenness, weakness and failure. Living without limits. We have no boundaries in our lives. We find it hard to say no. And number 10, we talked about this last week, but a really good sign of emotionally unhealthy spirituality is judging the spiritual journey of others. What are we doing? We are trying to make ourselves feel better at someone else's expense. We cannot love people that we are judging. And you are called to love people, to encourage people, to build people up. You cannot love people that you also make a scapegoat. It doesn't work. So let's stop, eh? <laughs> The last thing James says, and we're going to see in this passage, James says that a mature and wise person is one who can control their tongue. So remember in chapter one, uh, James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Mature and complete, not lacking anything. Mature and complete. He's talking about the integrity of your identity. You're not duplicit. You're not a split person. You're not this person there and this person here. That you are a whole person. That you are mature. All right. Are you ready to mature? Yeah, I am. I'm ready to grow up. No. 
Okay. All right. James, uh, so verse 1, it talks about, um, you know, you shouldn't want to become a teacher because teachers, uh, they're going to be judged more. So, so let's just start out by saying uh, that verse is for me. And, um, <laughs> but it, it, like, I think that should be a, a, just a sobering thought for all of us that maybe want to be in positions where we have authority over, over others, that actually Jesus says, hey, you're accountable to me for the way that you steward other people's lives. Don't take it lightly. Anyway, let's move on. Um, James, so James is really going to emphasize in this chapter that the way that we use our tongues not only reveals our hearts, but it actually exposes our maturity and also has the power to direct the path of our lives. Uh, um, so, uh, um, so he's talking about the fact that our tongue, our words, have the power to change our direction. They have the power to craft the atmosphere of your home. They can create life or death or chaos or order. That, that our tongues are very, very powerful. And, and I actually believe, as I was reading this this week, I think the only logical response to this passage this morning is actually repentance. That is the only logical response. That after we go through this passage, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead us in some repentance. And I, I would like to offer you the opportunity to actually come before Jesus and say, actually, Jesus, I want to turn from this way of living, thinking, and acting. I, I want to I live your way. Because we can see that his way is actually the wisdom of heaven. And I've been choosing the wisdom of the world. All right? So verse 3 to 6 says, says this. When we put the bits... Uh, in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are large, they are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder what, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Like James is not holding back here. He is not holding back. You know, when um, Ali and I first moved to uh, Upper Hutt, um, uh, many of you, you will know our story, but Savannah is, uh, is not my biolog biological child. And, and uh, when we made the decision to move up here, uh, or to actually, we felt called into some new ministry, but didn't know what. We said to our leader at the time, we'll move anywhere but Wellington. Um, <laughs> don't say that to God. Um, and so, who knows, God called us to Wellington. Why? Why did he call us to Wellington? Because it was uncomfortable. We had the opportunity to go to Sydney. Quite a nice little opportunity to help plant a church over there. Would have been really nice. Ali was from Sydney, beautiful. It was really comfortable. We looked and we could have all of the benefits of living in Australia. It was, all, it was all there for us. But we actually decided that what was comfortable was not the right thing, but what was uncomfortable was the right thing. Why? Because God actually wants us to grow up. And so we chose what was uncomfortable. And so we, we got here and there's a bit of a, a lot of tension in the relationship with Savannah's dad. And we decided we needed some wisdom from heaven on this. And we didn't know that we had it. We, we knew we didn't have it. We had to go see someone else. And so we went and saw a, a counselor, and they said, I'm going to tell you the truth. Are you ready to hear the truth? We said, sure. Doesn't mean we're going to obey it, but tell us the truth. <laughs> they, they said, the best thing for Savannah is if you love her dad. And don't you ever speak a bad word about him in front of her. <laughs> yeah, easy. 
So we made a decision that day that whatever happened when he didn't turn up, when he didn't follow through, we would never speak a bad word about him and we would love him. And we knew that, that what might bring some sense of satisfaction in our hearts for a moment to, to tear him down, in tearing him down, we are destroying, destroying Savannah at the same time. And so we made a decision, we would never do that. And do you know what? It totally changed the atmosphere and the relationship with him. Totally. He now comes for dinner, comes for Christmas, we hang out, and do you know what? Him and Savannah have the best relationship, and he is a great dad now. Totally, totally shifted it, all right? Why? Because we chose to obey the wisdom of heaven and not obey our own ideas. Right, come on, this is the power that our words have and our tongues have. They direct the path of our lives. This is what James is saying. He's saying, choose your words wisely. They are controlling the direction of your life. Like the rudder on a ship, like the bit in a horse's mouth, your life is following your words. Remember in James 1, he said this, if you do not control your tongue, your religion is worthless and you deceive yourself. You are deceived if you think that you are following Jesus if your tongue is leading you in the opposite direction and destroying others. That's what James is saying. Man, that's a tough word, isn't it? But do we trust Jesus? Do we trust his wisdom? Or are we relying on our own understanding? See, spiritual and emotional maturity is evidenced by the use of our tongues. In Proverbs it said that out of our hearts our mouth speaks. So James talks about our tongues that are like a fire, that it can set a whole place on fire. Has anyone like seen the aftermath of, of a, like a destructive fire? And, and when it just sweeps through and destroys everything, doesn't it? Like there's just nothing that it doesn't destroy. It just overtakes everything and just leaves a path of destruction. And, and James is telling us our tongues, our words have that kind of power, have that kind of power. In fact, James says that they, they are like the fires of hell. And so this term that James is using here for hell is, is in verse 6, it's the word Gehenna. And if you look through the Old Testament, you can find um, Gehenna, in, especially in Jeremiah. So Gehenna was a place um, where they would, uh, it was a place of pagan sacrifice in the Old Testament just outside of Jerusalem. And it eventually actually became a garbage dump just outside Jerusalem where fire would burn continually. And so it's this place of torture, a place of, 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 um, of continual burning and destruction. And Jesus and James both use this reference to, to talk about the fact that our, our tongues have that kind of destructive power. And so for the people hearing that message right then, they would have been able to identify with this fire that continually burns, this, this place of, of, of destruction and chaos. And the, this is what James is saying. He's not mucking around here. And, and this should all cause us to stop and to pause and, and to deeply consider what, how are our tongues affecting those around us? Our tongues can be the representation of the fires of hell or the new life in the kingdom of God. And in verse 9, James continues with this. He says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings. 
who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not. James is saying in one moment we confess that Jesus is Lord, we sing and we praise, and in the next moment we use those same lips to dehumanize others through gossip and judging and manipulation and tearing others down. This should not be. This is not what kingdom subjects look like. This is not what followers of Jesus look like. See, James is saying this is not only not wise, this is actually hellish behavior. Anyone else challenge? (laughs) So how do we overcome this? How do we step through this? This is not about striving. This is not about trying harder. It's about taking that inward journey and reflecting and saying, Jesus, I I repent, I surrender this to you. It's about sitting with the Father and the Holy Spirit and saying, God, search my heart. What is in me that I feel the need to dehumanize others to make me feel better about myself? I, I repent for using these lips to destroy. And it's, it's not about behavior management. Please hear me. This is not about you trying harder to be better. What's required is heart surgery from the great physician. There is a deep hurt in our hearts if we feel the need to use our lips to pull down others. So a while ago, Chantal spoke about not just changing our mindsets, but changing our heart sets. This is what we need, church. We need to come before the great physician and say, open my heart, Lord. Search my heart. We need heart surgery. In the next next chapter, James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, the way of Jesus is the way of humility. It's the laying down of self so that Christ may elevate in proper time. I've been a pastor now for, for about 20 years, which seems really long. Man, I'm old. <laughs> I've also been human for um, about 37 years. I've discovered some things in life. I've discovered some things after sitting down with people, with sitting down with uh, people going through the, the worst times in their life and the best times in their life, sitting down with people going through all sorts of things. I've discovered some things. One thing I've discovered is that I believe that a large portion of problems in life are connected to to an unwillingness to surrender. There's too much of self, too much self-ambition, envy, jealousy, the deception of self, and we have not entered into that kind of death of self that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about, the cost of discipleship. We are trying to live our lives separate from God saying, I want to be the judge. I know better. (laughs) I know how to create life, rather than surrendering and saying, Jesus, I want your life. A.W. Tozer put it like this. He said, as God is exalted to the right place in our lives, a thousand problems are solved all at once. 
as God is exalted to the right place in our life, a thousand problems are solved all at once. And James continues in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Verse 14, listen to this, But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual, even demonic. See, what's James doing here? He, he's, he's, he's looking at the behavior, and now he's flipping the iceberg and saying, here are all the motives that are underneath this behavior. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's not about what the, you know, Jesus, he's sort of talking about the tip of the iceberg, but then we flip it and we see all the motives, all of the heart stuff that is underneath why we treat others badly, why, why we need to judge them. Why do we need to judge their journey and their spiritual journey? It's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with me. But we do it because we feel inadequate about ourselves, about our own journey, and so we feel we need to point out, well, I'm not like them, and I'm not like them. Come on, it's your older brother. This is, this is not what it means to follow Jesus. You have your own relationship with him. One day we'll all stand before God. This is brilliant. We'll all stand before God. And, and, and we'll be talking with him about our, our lives. And, and we won't be able to say, oh, but, but Sarah offended me when I was 13. And Jesus will say, no, no, we're not talking about Sarah. We're talking about your life. Stop offending me. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and, and so James is pointing out this behavior. He's exposing the motives, the selfish ambition, and the envy, and the jealousy that is driving this type of behavior. And he's saying, listen, your tongues, your words have the power to create life or death, the, the power to release heaven or hell. And, and the height of hypocrisy is to praise God with one, in one moment and the next moment to use those same lips to gossip and manipulate and judge and compare and tear down. Have we got questions? Are we doing questions? We do have some questions. Um, all right. Uh, yes, I'm running out of time, so let's move on to questions. So, all right. Is her mic on? Uh, is my mic on? Turn that on. Yep. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, how do you become self-aware of your spiritual maturity when you don't know or you're unaware? This is your part of the 85%. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, so one of the big things here is that often we don't position ourselves in places of accountability. So we don't position ourselves. So, so to, to be a disciple or to make a disciple in isolation is an oxymoron. You cannot do it. You cannot be a disciple with just you and Jesus. That is, we are disciples in community. Jesus had disciples in community. We need people that are around us that are able to point out our blind spots. Now, what often happens is that we, we don't feel safe with people pointing out, out our blind spots, so we do everything we can to avoid it. We, we, and we over-spiritualize things all the time to avoid someone pointing out our blind spots. But someone that wants to grow will position themselves, no matter how uncomfortable it is, to, to have someone point out their blind spots. And, and so if you're not sure, um, let someone you know, a life group leader or whatever, have someone in your life and just say, can you tell me 
my blind spots. I promise that I will be offended, but I won't hold it against you. (laughs) Because it will hurt and it will be uncomfortable, but you will grow. Come on, you want you want to grow, it will be uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how deep can you tell if you've crossed the line? So for example, between saying stuff to try and help someone and judging. Um it, it all it all comes down to motive. Um and I mean if you're asking that question, I would be questioning the motive. If you're unsure whether you're judging someone or wanting to encourage them, you've got, you've got to sit down with yourself a bit and say, what is my motive here? And I think that has to be the key thing that we always do, no matter what we're doing, is it has to be a, a, a motive. And so um, the, the I think, um, so the Bible talks about speaking the truth in love, and we mentioned that, oh, I mentioned on the Squadcast. Um, sorry, everyone. Uh, we are doing an extra podcast every week now called the Squadcast, uh, which is for you to help grow in your squads and your small groups, and we're sort of wrestling with some of the stuff that comes out of, of a Sunday, so have a listen to that. But uh, there's a passage that says to speak the truth in love. A lot of people use that as we're supposed to tell the world the truth in love. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with church unity and maturity. And so here's the thing, you cannot tell someone the truth and love unless you love them. Unless you actually care about the person, it, 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 when, it, what, what can happen is that um, truth can actually become stones to throw rather than bread to feed. All right? And, and so, so that's, that's the key thing. Is this something that I want to throw at someone so that I feel better about myself? Or do I actually want to feed them with truth? And if I care about them, then I want to feed them with truth. And I think that's probably the key. Is that all the questions? Cool. All right. Great. The music team can come on up, um, and and we'll sort of bring this to a bit of a close. But I just want to give you one last um, thought. Um, Yeah. So so for me, every time I, I read a passage now, I pretty much always go back to the Garden of Eden because that is the, the setup for the whole story of the Bible. Like it is, it, 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 it's always about that. Um, and so in, in the beginning, God, God um, what does he do? He, he see, takes what is chaotic and without form and, and he speaks order and creates something beautiful and life-giving. And, and then he says to humanity, your turn. All right? Go forth and multiply. What are we supposed to be multiplying? We're supposed to be multiplying order and beauty, something that is life-giving. But what can happen, we can actually use that power that God has shared with us, and instead of creating beauty, we're creating disorder and chaos and ruin and destruction with our words. And so since the beginning of time, God has shared this power, this creative power that our words have power and, and we can use that for good or we can use it for evil. And, and this is the mandate that we have always had as, as image bearers of God, to create beauty, to, to bring order into our world and create beauty in something that's life-giving. But humanity has decided that we would use that power to rule over each other and be judges. God never gave us the right to rule over each other. You read the story. And instead of speaking beauty, and order, we have used our words to destroy. This, this should not be. This is what James is saying. This should not be. 
So the final part of the chapter here, um, just before we, we come to response with communion and, and just um, gathering together in worship, um, James gives us the two ideas of wisdom. And he says this, who is, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or, or deny the truth. What's he saying here? Don't, don't be in denial about what your motives truly are. Don't, don't over-spiritualize it. Oh, I just wanted to encourage them. No, no. You're comparing your life with them. You're judging them. Don't, don't deny them. Sit down with Jesus. Let him expose what's really going on. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual. It's even demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. See, James is thinking about that story in the garden. We're supposed to bring order, but we're actually bringing disorder. And he carries on verse 17. He says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What does this word righteousness mean? It means right in being. He's talking about an ordered and whole heart. He's talking about someone that has peace in relationships. A, a peace that comes from the inside out. Th this is what James is talking about. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Could you imagine life would look like, feel like, if that was our primary motive, to sow peace, to sow peace, to be peacemakers. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Come on, it's like God is looking on the earth, and he's looking for the peacemakers. There's one of my kids. Ah, that's another one. I, I want to be one of those kids. Yeah. Peacemaker. Well, let's stand this morning. I want to invite you into response this morning. We talk about responding to the gospel. This morning is a moment of response. We come before communion and we come to the bread and the, the juice that represents his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. And we know that when we come before his throne and we go, God, Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy reminds us that we are also to extend mercy to those around us. 
not judge them, but extend mercy. Now this morning, if you want to respond, maybe you're thinking, man, I have been using my words in the wrong way. I've been comparing, I've been judging, I've been tearing down. Maybe you recognize that it's not producing the fruit that you had hoped for. I want you to respond this morning in some way. Come before Jesus, get on your knees. I I mean, I'd love to pray with you if you want prayer this morning. Just come to the front during worship and just, just get before Jesus. Respond this morning. Let Him do some heart surgery this morning. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are calling us up into our identity. You're calling us into wholeness. You're calling us to be your image bearers on the earth, people who are right from the inside out, not trying to make ourselves right by pointing out others' faults or where they fall down, but people who see themselves as children of you, people that are able to call people up. So Father, we thank you for your presence here this morning. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are here, that it is you that leads us into truth, that it it is you that is our teacher and our comforter, and we thank you that in these moments of discomfort, where we actually maybe look at ourselves and say, oh, it's a little bit gross. (laughs) Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're my comforter in this moment. And we thank you that because of you, Jesus, because of what you've done, and we thank you, Holy Spirit, because of your power that is at work within us, that that tomorrow does not have to be the same as today, that, that tomorrow we can walk into a new sense of identity and a new sense of righteousness and a, and a new sense of truth. We thank you that our past no longer defines us and that doesn't matter what we have done in the past. If we have used our tongues for bad in the past, that today we can turn and that we can use our tongues for, for good. We can use our tongues to bring the kingdom of heaven thank you, Holy Spirit, that you empower us to do this. We love you, God. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Yeah, amen, amen, amen. Now let's worship, let's respond, let's just do what you feel appropriate in this, in this moment.